So I thought we should start this week with our question from last week. Tell me, Chris. Remind me, please. Can we put a fork in it? As Dave Wasserman would say, have you seen enough? Well, I have seen enough to uh, conclude that the Republican Party has lost control of the House of Representatives. That I have seen enough about. Okay. Well, that seems obvious. Would you go beyond there? Is the Republican Party, as we know it, done? We've been witnessing it for at least a dozen years, the coming apart of the Republican Party. It is definitely here. But the question is, is there someone who can rescue it or at least hold the pieces together for one more election cycle? Yes. So maybe it has one more election cycle. Why don't we start with what you wrote this week? And then I would like your reaction to something. I wrote a note to some friends who were discussing this, which used some of the uh, thinking that came from your piece, which I thought was excellent. So you wrote, the breakup of the Republican Party is here. You wrote it the day after the vote. Yesterday's vote to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy was truly historic, but also entirely predictable. Every single Republican speaker since the Tea Party emerged in 2010 has been run out of town. The same populist forces that drove Boehner and Ryan into retirement and were given actual power by Donald Trump have now taken their latest victim. Dozens of articles this morning described the House Republican Caucus as ungovernable. That's true because there's no longer any ideological consistency across the party. I totally agree with that. For all the problems of the Democratic Party, there's an ideological line from Manchin to Bernie Sanders. Both are committed to the party's goals of trying to use government to improve the lives of their constituents. The news media focuses on their differences, of course, but the voting records still show a great deal of overlap. That's not true of the Republican Party anymore. One side of the party is committed to the traditional Republican goals of low taxes and conservative social policies, but the other side just wants to tear it all down. There's no reconciling these positions. Trump has mostly kept the party together through a cult of personality, but if his grip on the GOP weakens or he leaves the scene, don't be surprised to see the breakup of the Republican Party accelerate. So is your core point that it comes down to the next, call it 15 months, that if Trump either for some reason is not able to run or runs and loses, is that the key factor? Is it all on Trump? It's not all on Trump, but if we watch the election of the next speaker, which will begin next week, and it may go on for quite some time, there's a chance it could be settled early, but I suspect it will go on for quite some time. I think we'll begin to see some of these problems that I outlined in that piece. We have Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise so far running for speaker. Kevin Hearn, who's the chair of the Republican Study Committee, is in the process of calling every single House Republican, and he says he'll make a decision after he talks to all of them. Presumably, he'll do that by next week when they begin holding votes for the next speaker. But as you watch each of these lawmakers try to pull together a coalition and try to get to 218 votes to become the next speaker, it becomes very clear that they go after different constituencies and they have different loyalties. It's very hard right now as we sit just a couple days from Kevin McCarthy's ouster, it's very hard for us to see how any of these guys can pull together 218 votes. And then we have the wild card, which is Donald Trump, who says, I'm going to come to Capitol Hill next week, and I'm going to talk to the House GOP caucus. And there's even some members who are going to put Donald Trump's name in to become Speaker of the House, because as you know, Chris, you do not have to be a member of Congress to be Speaker. 
if Donald Trump were to become speaker, even in some sort of temporary fashion, as he's kind of floating, you know, in order to keep the party together, can you imagine putting a vote out and having House Republicans have to vote for Donald Trump as speaker? Donald Trump would have difficulty getting to 218 votes as well, because all of those moderate Republicans who are running in districts that Joe Biden carried in 2020, they would have to stand up and in public voice their vote for Donald Trump. I mean, it's like a campaign ad against them in each of their districts. I just don't ever see that happening. Not to mention the fact that Donald Trump doesn't quite realize that you actually have to show up on Capitol Hill every day for your job and actually preside over the House. But regardless of that, I just can't see Donald Trump being any factor in this selection because he couldn't get 218 votes. And so while there may be a scenario where you can wear everybody down as Kevin McCarthy did back in January, and he went through 15 rounds and ultimately they decide right now, as it stands, I don't think any of these guys can get to 218 votes. Let's deal with this question that you just put on the table of could Trump actually be speaker? Then I think move on. That would be, no doubt, and I think we mentioned this the other week, the ultimate political junkie extravaganza. The thought of a former president coming in, becoming House Speaker, and as a way to try to leapfrog back to the presidency, what gets political junkies like you more excited, that or the every four years discussion of a brokered convention? It might be a tie for folks like you. But On the practical side, you raised one practicality, like could he actually get 218 votes of those, whatever it is, I think it's like 20 Republican representatives who were elected in Biden districts, would not four of them splinter off because of the reason that you said? That's one thing. Two, I agree. I mean, just there was a very brief period where I thought, oh, wait, maybe they would do it. But practically, I don't see how he runs for president, runs the House, and deals with all of the legal troubles. I think that the decision will be made based off of what creates the greatest showmanship, what creates the greatest amount of focus back on him. Was there an opportunity for him to ride in as a hero and negotiate between Gates and McCarthy? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, perhaps he could have done that. It's interesting that reports show that Kevin McCarthy didn't even ask for his help in that there's other reports who said that Donald Trump said he was going to have to save his ass by himself, that Trump wasn't going to go out on a limb for him. And, you know, that suggests to me that Donald Trump knows that this is an impossible situation too, that there is no bridging this gap between the eight Republicans who were voting against McCarthy and the rest of the Republican conference. You know, one thing before we stop talking about Donald Trump as potential speaker, there is just one little small problem as well, is that the House Republican Conference rules currently state that if you've been charged with a felony indictment, that you cannot actually serve in the House GOP leadership. You would have to step down from that. Just a small little detail. Rules were made to be broken, my friend. (laughs) Trump has 91 of those. They can obviously change the rules, but again, you're asking a lot of Republicans to vote to change the rules to let a guy who's been charged with 91 felonies. What Donald Trump does know, just as he's shown this week, 
you know, at his fraud trial in New York is that when the cameras are there, it's good to be in front of the cameras if you're running for president and if you're trying to hog up all the attention. Obviously, Donald Trump sees an opportunity to show up on Capitol Hill next week. Cameras will be there. They'll cover it. We'll all talk about the possibility of Trump possibly becoming speaker, even though there's no chance at all that that's ever going to happen. But Trump sees it as a great opportunity. And by the way, Chris, do you know who else sees it as a tremendous opportunity? That would be Democrats. Democrats love this. Yes, there seems to be a run on popcorn on that side of the aisle. So let's hold Trump aside and let's get through some of these tactical elements. I do want to get back to this question of, is the Republican Party done, broadly speaking? Does it no longer exist in the way that we have thought about it over the last however many years? So holding Trump aside for the reasons that you just discussed, to the extent you can, taking the personalities out of it, what are the forces that you see in deciding among Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise or let's say Kevin Hearn? Where do they fall? Where does the momentum lie? Who can pull together? Where is there the greatest overlap that could get somebody to 218? What are the forces that are driving whoever's going to take that role next? Well, the reason why I'm excited if I'm a Democrat watching this is that all three of those men are playing to the right wing of their party. Jim Jordan, obviously, is a founder of the House Freedom Caucus. He's playing to each of those eight lawmakers who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy. Jordan came out today publicly saying that he would not penalize or seek to oust Matt Gates from the Republican conference. He thinks you need to build a bridge to these eight. Some of them have actually come out, including Matt Gates, supporting Jordan's quest for the speakership. Scalise as well. All of his instincts are to appeal to the more conservative side of the party. And the same is true with Kevin Hearn, who's in the leadership as well. That's the way the leadership under Kevin McCarthy played. And that's the way each of these gentlemen play as well. There's a simple problem with that. And if you look to Nancy Pelosi, who, in my view, is the greatest speaker in U.S. history, certainly in our lifetime, the way that Nancy Pelosi ran her caucus was to support all the members in swing districts. That's how they achieve their power, because majorities in the House are always derived from a party's ability to manage and to protect its moderates. You always need those players that are right there in the middle, and you need to win those seats. What Kevin McCarthy did last week by forcing moderates to vote on a continuing resolution that dramatically cut spending in programs that are very popular in these swing districts is he put all of them at political risk. That's not how a successful speaker manages their caucus. And so unfortunately for Republicans, each one of these people vying for the job right now, they're really just no different than Kevin McCarthy. You're not going to win by appealing to the conservative side. You need to protect your moderates if you're going to win. Democrats look at what has happened and they look at the chaos in the House. They even have got clips of Matt Gates saying things that will be featured in Democratic campaign ads next cycle. Just a total and utter mess for Republicans. I would deem it highly unlikely that Republicans can keep the majority unless something major happens to undermine the Democratic Party at this point. It is complete political malpractice the way that Republicans have managed this. And I don't see anything changing with at least the candidates who've emerged so far to try to replace Kevin McCarthy. That's a really, really, really interesting point on the need to manage your moderates, take care of your moderates as the key to remaining as speaker. But the moderates voted for McCarthy, the same ones that he had put in that difficult position 
just days earlier or a week earlier, they all voted to keep him. So how does that reconcile? The politics that they also face is that this complete chaos in their conference that's leading to their inability to manage the House, that's bad for their reelections too. And they may or may not like Kevin McCarthy. They certainly don't enjoy Kevin McCarthy's bending over backwards to the right wing as they had to witness over the last nine, 10 months. But the chaos that we have seen over the course of the last few days, that is worse for them because they're going into their elections trying to show that vote Republican, put us back in charge, and we will govern this country responsibly and carefully. They can't do that right now. And so they were literally just voting for the status quo, regardless of what McCarthy wanted. The problem with most of these eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy, maybe with the exception of Nancy Mace, although she's impossible to figure out. Seven of the eight, at least, are hardcore conservatives who really their general approach is just burn it down. They're really just not interested in any of the way that it works. None of them are trying to seek a leadership position. None of them really have a way out of this path whatsoever. But what they do have in a House Republican caucus that has a bare majority is they each have a vote right now. That's power right now. So unfortunately, the only way out of this for Republicans is to have a big enough majority that you can ignore these right-wing votes out there. But as long as those right-wing votes are needed, and Jim Jordan has said this week that he will bridge the gap to those right-wing votes and he'll pull them in, he wants to bring them back into the caucus. As long as you're doing that, you're not protecting your moderates. And so you know, Nancy Pelosi, she had a very practical view. You know, her famous quote was, just win, baby. Do what you need to win. Nancy Pelosi didn't mind these moderate Democrats criticizing her. She just wanted them to win their seats. That's all she cared about. You literally just asked my next question. What's up with Nancy Mace? She's hard to figure out, I have to say. I mean, she's all over the place in terms of what she's doing. She claims that she voted against McCarthy because he broke promises that he made to her. With all we know about Kevin McCarthy, that very well may be true, but it just seems like the knives are out for Nancy Mace right now within the caucus. She's in a really uncomfortable place. With absolute certainty, she will be challenged in a primary, and it's not clear where she is on the ideological spectrum, even what she believes in at this point. So, you know, she had tried to position herself just a few months ago as a more moderate member of the caucus, and now she's thrown in with the likes of Matt Gates. It's very hard to figure her out. And your other point that Jim Jordan says, and I'm sure Steve Scalise says the same thing, that they could be a bridge to the far right, to the Matt Gateses or whoever, and bring them all back into the caucus. That feels true to me. Like, why can't they? And are there four moderate Republicans who would not be able to vote for Jim Jordan? Like, why is it not possible that a Jim Jordan or Steve Scalise could absolutely get those eight? that the rest of the Republican conference would feel, you know what? We need to show that we can govern. We need to stop this chaos now. We need to appear united. And if Jim Jordan isn't the right person, we'll have to deal with that in two years. Or Scalise isn't the right person, we'll deal with that in two years. But right here, right now, we need to show voters that we do not represent chaos. So let's go for it. And then that far right they could claim victory that we won, we did it, we got rid of McCarthy, we got someone who is one of us or understands us. They now have a real incentive for that person to succeed. The rest of the the other, whatever, 210 Republican representatives, they have an incentive for that person to succeed because they want to stop the chaos and give the appearance that the Republican Party can govern. 
why is that actually not a fairly easy fix where everyone's incentives are aligned to make it work? Well, I think in theory, you're absolutely correct. And I think you're absolutely correct in the fact that someone like Jim Jordan could be a bridge to these right-wingers. I mean, keep in mind that Jim Jordan was the guy who torpedoed John Boehner from the speakership. He was the Matt Gates of his era. Jim Jordan is also the one who blocked Kevin McCarthy from becoming speaker before Paul Ryan did. And now Jim Jordan is somehow playing this inside game that he is a part of the leadership. He's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee now, that he was an ally of Kevin McCarthy. But still, his credentials are as chair of the Freedom Caucus, chair and founder of the Freedom Caucus. And so if you're a guy like, we'll just pick on one of these moderates, a guy named Mike Waller, who represents a New York district adjacent to the one that you and I live in, Chris. I can just imagine if he voted for Jim Jordan, his Democratic opponent has a field day with that. The fact that he backed Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan, one of the most conservative members of Congress, I can't see Lawler doing that and surviving in a Biden one district. But is it worse for Lawler to be the Republican representative running for office in his district from a Republican party that can't govern, has chaos, has been, let's just say, you know, we're pushing the end of October, we're going into November, there's another shutdown on the horizon. What's worse for him? Having voted for Jim Jordan because that was what stopped the hemorrhaging, that's what got things back on track. Maybe moderates are able to get some, quote, promises from Jim Jordan, like there's not going to be a shutdown or something like that. Is it worse for him to have voted for Jim Jordan but created, quote, stability or to be tacked on to a Republican party that takes the country careening off the cliff? Well, Chris, since I sat next to you in graduate school learning about game theory, I'll just review with you. This is a prisoner's dilemma. Yeah. That is absolutely right what you say. Putting this thing past them is probably the best thing. It's just that each individual lawmaker has their own incentives. And so whether you can get them to get there, you might be right. This might be over much more quickly than I think right now. But let's just say I won't be surprised if this goes many, many rounds because I don't see either Steve Scalise, the current majority leader, giving up or Jim Jordan, who claims that he's going to be a bridge to these right wingers. There is some talk that we should mention of the two of them running as a slate where I would imagine Steve Scalise would be speaker and that Jim Jordan would be majority leader. That's an interesting concept. That's a very practical position I think that you could make. Perhaps something like that might work, but I think we're a long way from there. But we'll see. We have a long weekend, and I think that there's going to be a lot of Republicans talking on the phone this weekend. Do you believe that Matt Gates at those eight have an interest in governing, or they have an interest only in chaos, attention, building up their own names, et cetera? Well, I think Matt Gates has an interest in being governor of Florida. That's where he's angling. There's an interesting story that's brewing is that another Florida Republican, Byron Donalds, whose name was in the mix of becoming speaker during those 15 rounds that ultimately elected Kevin McCarthy, that Byron Donalds also wants to be governor of Florida. He's kind of playing the inside game. Matt Gates is playing the burn it down game. It would be very interesting to see if that becomes the Republican primary matchup to succeed Ron DeSantis in Florida. But I think that's what Matt Gates wants. I think many of these people might have true policy ambitions to somehow dramatically cut government spending because they truly believe that it's a problem, but they have no practical political abilities whatsoever because that's not how it's going to get done. Everything is obviously a compromise. And if the Republicans want to stay in party, they need to make that bridge not to the conservatives. They need to make it to the moderates. 
The moderates are the ones that will keep them in power. Someone like Matt Gates is unlikely to ever be defeated from his district unless it's by another Republican who challenges him in a primary. But Mike Lawler, who's sitting in that blue district in New York, he's very likely to be ousted next time. And if he and some of his other Republican colleagues who faced a similar close election like that, and if they're ousted, well, it doesn't matter which Republican wants to be speaker because it will be Hakeem Jeffries who's the speaker. To close, let's go back to the question at the top. Is this the end of the Republican Party as we know it? Some of that article that you wrote influenced my thinking on this, and it also aligns with the topic that you and I discuss frequently offline, which is the disruption of everything. I had a friend who was giving me kind of a both sides argument that, you know, this is such a mess and, you know, the Republicans, they were crazy. And, you know, boy, Democrats, they showed that they didn't want to have a functioning government because they could have supported, kept McCarthy. And he's kind of giving me a both sides argument, which I was like, that's just not an accurate argument at all. Some of this is what you wrote as well in that piece. And I said, well, compare it to what happened in media, that growing up, there were the three TV channels, basically. And today, media is almost completely niche. There's a flavor for all of us, essentially infinite sources. Media is no longer a monolith. And at some level, that's what's happening within the Republican Party. You know, there are at minimum two Republican parties, but, you know, you could even argue there's three, maybe more than that problem is they don't share the same goals. This was the point that you made in your piece. They're at war with each other, with one group willing to bring the entire U.S. down the sinkhole with them. Given that they don't share the core ideology, the chance for those forces to align is through force of personality. And that's kind of the Trump point. That was your point at the start of this. His personality was a great deal of what kept them together. But you might ask then, what about the Democrats? Because they're splintered too. And you know, you've got the squad and you've got other progressives and you've got moderates. So why have they stayed together? One, I think, is the point that you made, ideology. They have that core underlying belief that you wrote, government should exist to help make people's lives better. Two was personality, namely Nancy Pelosi. Through her skill and personality, she kept them together. And three was fear that Trump and whatever anti-democracy movement provides part of his support scared Democrats straight and kept them all together. The question then that I found myself wondering is, does that democratic cohesiveness continue? If those are the forces, ideology, personality, and let's just call it fear that are keeping them together, at some point, do they break too? Is that the age that we are in, the disruption of everything? And that as of today, the party holds, but is there a reason to think that that's an infinite reality? Broadly speaking, technology on some level is at the absolute core, is the great disruptor of all of it. It made me think then about the future of both parties. Any thoughts on that? I think you raise a really outstanding point. It's just that the Republican Party so far has found itself subject to these disruptive forces first. You know, you've got someone like Matt Gates who has used social media to essentially oust a speaker for the first time in American history. I mean, it's extraordinary. You have Donald Trump who has taken over one of the major parties, literally using a Twitter account and speaking directly to people. This is all something that information technology has allowed. And the fact that it hasn't happened to the Democrats yet doesn't mean that it won't. And these same forces that have really undermined the Republican Party, they probably will undermine the Democratic Party at some point too. 
It's just that right now there is some consistency between what Democrats agree on and how Democrats view the role of government. Democrats view the role of government as an important force to improving the lives of their constituents. Republicans don't have a unified position on that. But the point that you raise is a truly outstanding one. It's something that we should really, when we don't have the chaos of the week's events to analyze and dissect, it's something that we should probably get into. Because I do think, just as you've seen industry after industry disrupted by the same information technology, it is happening to our politics at the same time. And we're just in the beginning stages of that. So you mean we'll have more trial balloon episodes, more things to talk about? I think we're going to have a lot to talk about, Chris. Stay tuned. Talk next week, Tegan.